0: and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. It's nearly six years since Emmanuel Macron became the president of France. Je nous suis capable de relever celles qui sont devant nous et d'être cette génération qui a la responsabilité de refonder la France et l'Europe pour les transmettre plus fortes, plus belles, plus justes à nos enfants. Ensemble, nous allons réussir. Et c'est fort de cette confiance que je vous présente tous mes vœux. Pour cette année nouvelle. Vive la République. Vive la France. I know we can deal with what lies ahead of us and be the generation that takes responsibility for restoring the foundations of France and Europe to leave them a stronger, more beautiful and fairer place for our children. Together, we will succeed. And with that confidence, I send you my best wishes for the new year. That was Macron's New Year message, confident that he can push through big reforms, despite his party, Renaissance, losing its majority in Parliament last year. How does he want to change France and will he get the chance to do it? Joining me is Sophie Pedder, the Paris Bureau Chief for The Economist and author of a biography of Macron. Welcome to the bunker, Sophie.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Let's look back at the last year for Macron. He managed to win a second term and fend off the far right, but the parliamentary elections were not a success
1: for him. What happened? Well, I think you have to recall that his re-election, for one thing, was was already quite a feat. You know, he is the only sitting president who had a governing majority under the Fifth Republic to have been re-elected by direct universal suffrage. So, you know, that in itself was quite something. But then I think what happened is he took his eye off the ball and possibly became a bit complacent, didn't really campaign much. And if you remember, in between the two rounds of the parliamentary election, he actually went off to Kiev with Scholz and Draghi on that joint visit uh, to see Zelensky. And I think that that meant that he was really not as focused on those elections as he might have been.
0: So what message were the French sending? Get back home and deal with our problems.
1: A little bit of that. And I think probably that they wanted to see some checks put on his power and, and also for the power to be exercised more, you know, differently, perhaps more collaboratively with a say in a, for the opposition parties for Parliament to matter more. And I think that is what he's got because he doesn't have a majority anymore and he's got to work with Parliament.
0: Has he taken that message on board?
1: Well, in some respects, I'd say so because of this situation with Parliament. There are 577 seats in the National Assembly in France, and he's got 250 of those. So he's about 39 short of a majority. And by uh, definition, he now has to work with the the opposition to pass laws. So sometimes he does that with the Republicans on the right. Sometimes he does that with the socialists on the left. But it just makes everything more complicated for him. I think that the opposition parties they they are very much enjoying this because it gives them a proper role. Um, but even to pass the budget, he, he has to he has to get get some opposition support. Um, so it it is it has been forced on him to govern differently, and that's possibly no no such bad thing, even if it makes it more complicated.
0: Parties in France are always reforming and realigning, but the left has changed tack and reformed itself, hasn't it, since last year?
1: Well, it has. There's this four-way coalition of parties that have come together under the slightly strange acronym NOOPS. Um, and they range from um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's uh, unsubmissive France on the far left. He's a sort of Corbynite version of the left, um, if you if you like. And then there's the socialists, there are the Greens in there as well. And it's really, uh, and the Communist Party uh, as the fourth partner, and it's really a sort of very broad coalition that agrees on some things and disagrees on quite a lot of others. Um, I mean, for example, the role of France and NATO or the attitude towards Russia. It's a strange beast. It's held together so far, but it has very much made the Socialist Party, which used to be such a sort of towering presence on the French political landscape, it's made the Socialist Party very much a junior partner in that coalition because they, the, the, the dominant party is, is, party is Mélenchon's uh, unsubmissive France. So
0: what big reforms is Macron trying to push through at the moment?
1: Well, the biggest in, in his intray is, is his pension reform, which he uh, announced on, on January the 10th. This is designed to raise the minimum pension age in France from 62 to 64 years. I mean, that's still pretty low by European standards. But for, for France, it doesn't like pension reform. Polls suggest that you know a big majority, up to sort of 68% in some polls, do not want this. All the opposition parties pretty much apart from the Republicans are against it. All the unions, literally every single one are against it. Um, They've already announced there'll be strikes on January the 19th. So this is going to be a really difficult one for Macron. I think in many ways, it will be the test of whether he's still capable of being that reformist president we saw in the first term during his second mandate. It's one of the things that makes France distinctive, isn't it? Because I mean, we've raised
0: our pension age in the UK. And I can't even remember exactly when it happened that I realised I would have to work for two or three years more, but it's happened. And yet in France, it's an enormous, it's,
1: it's a big deal. It is. And it has brought down or at least sort of defeated previous governments, many of them. If you think back to 1995, there were huge paralysing strikes in France. It was a time when Jacques Chirac was president and uh, Alain Juppé was his prime minister. And they tried to introduce pension reform then and it failed. They shelved it in the end because they decided that they were not ready to take it, to take on the streets. And I think this is what we are going to at least be uh, confronted with this, this, you know, the next three months or so, whether or not Macron is able to stand firm despite the fact that it's going to be very heavily contested and there will be strikes and it will be very difficult. From this side of the channel, France seems to have been less affected by the cost of living
0: crisis and the Ukraine war than we have. Why is that?
1: Because France has thrown money at the problem. I mean, if you look at uh, the subsidies that the French have given, for example, to petrol last year, they've capped gas prices last year, they capped the rise in electricity prices to 4% last year. All of this has been, you know, has come at a cost, but it's been hugely helpful in keeping down inflation. The inflation rate in December actually fell, it was below 7% from, from the previous month. So I think, you know, the government is very concerned not to let the knock-on effects of the decisions to impose sanctions on Russia as a result of the Ukraine war uh, affect ordinary people. And that's why so far uh, the inflation rate has been relatively low, even though, of course, any inflation rate, obviously, is, it hurts to, uh, for, for a lot of people all the same.
0: How much longer can Macron afford to protect people from high energy prices like this? Because this must be an extremely expensive policy.
1: It is. And it is something that the French have begun to phase out in some respects. I think what they're trying to do is target those subsidies more. So there are no more petrol subsidies at the pump, but you will get a check if you're on low income. It's that sort of change. Energy prices are going to go up. By about 15% this year. So the targeting will be less expensive. And, you know, France is finding that interest rates for its borrowing are going up as well. So it is going to have to be a little bit more careful about how much uh, it does borrow in order to support these kind of policies. And that's going to be one of the challenges for this year. Thinking
0: about Ukraine, Macron seemed to start out a bit reluctantly when it came to supporting Ukraine, but that's changed. In fact, he's just promised an order of tanks,
1: hasn't he? Why, why has that happened? What's changed his mind? Well, it's interesting. You were, you used the word reluctantly. I think I would use cautiously um, uh, to describe his initial attitude. I mean, when you think back to February last year, I don't forget the war broke out just after he made that ill-fated trip to Moscow to see Putin. And he was trying to talk Putin out of the war in Ukraine. And I, I, re- I was on that trip. And I can remember that, you know, even if he wasn't naive about it, there was a real sense he thought that he'd secured some agreement from Putin, that it. He wouldn't be the cause of escalation at the time. And I think he felt that even keeping a channel of communication open to Putin might somehow be a way of talking some kind of reason into him. Well, obviously, that that failed. And I think Macron's learned from that. You know, even in June, when he went to Kiev to announce, do you remember when uh, he and Schultz and Draghi announced that they would all back Ukraine becoming a candidate for EU membership? Macron even then was worry, worrying about uh, not sending too much heavy weaponry to to Ukraine because he didn't want to escalate the war. So I think, you know, over time, he has reassessed, he's um, changed his, his judgment of the risks and the risks to liberal democracy, the risks to, the, you know, the freedom and peace on the continent. And he's decided that it's more important right now, while continuing, if necessary, to have that, con- that channel of communication open to Putin, it's, it's imp- really important to back Ukraine all the way.
0: Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial.
1: The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a... An act of criminality? We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct.
0: This is the story of his first week in court, told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Macron is a centrist. He founded basically founded his own party, which was neither the Socialist Party nor really a party of the right. He's a centrist in an age of populism, an age of extremes, and he's extremely conscious of that, isn't he? How has he managed to survive in a Europe which has been tempted and is constantly tempted by populists?
1: He is. He really is the epitome in so many ways of sort of centrist values at a time when they are under threat and, and, and unfashionable in a, in a way. And I think in one sense, that success is due to the ambition of the party that, that he created back in 2016 this big centrist political project was was extraordinary, really. When you think about it, it crushed the Socialist Party. It crushed the Republican Party on the right. And he siphoned out the best talents, you know, into government. You think of Edouard Philippe, his first prime minister, was someone from the centre-right. No one associated him with Macron at all. So he did, in a way, crush those parties and that has had a lasting effect and enabled his centrist sort of project to survive until now. He was also helped by the the French Constitution. I mean, don't forget that there is this two round French presidential system, and therefore you only have to have a minority of votes in the first round. You just have to be right at the top, be one of the top two, in order to go round to the second, to go through to the second. So, you you can enable centrism as a political project in France in a way that it would be much more difficult, I think, in certainly in the UK parliamentary system, but in in a lot of other parliamentary systems too.
0: It may be a bit too early to say, but can his party survive him? Is Renaissance more than Macron himself?
1: It will be difficult, to be honest. I think, you know, it was um, constructed around him. Its original name, Enmarche, took his initials. Uh, It fails really to put down local roots in a a proper, meaningful and lasting way. So it it may well not survive in its current form. But I think you also have to remember that parties do come and go in France in a way that's perhaps surprising. Their names change all the time. What really matters, I think, is not whether his party survives, but whether the, the liberal centre, the sort of democratic centre, can survive and can hold against the pressures of the extremists and particularly that of Marine Le Pen. Does he have a natural
0: successor in this? Can you think of someone who might be the next Macron?
1: Well, I can think of a a few who would like to be, and they're sitting very much in his government at the moment, or have recently been members of it. Edouard Philippe is one, Bruno Le Maire, who is the current finance minister, is another, Gérald Darmanin, who is his interior minister, is yet another. There are a number of of ambitious, uh, would-be successors to Macron. But I think at this point, it's too early to say which of those has the greatest chance of coming through and i think it also depends a lot on whether macron decides to to help them to really sort of make space he's not a natural delegator uh, and i think it's a, it's an open question whether he will manage to groom a successor who becomes a sort of natural heir to that project
0: macron's personality is quite Fascinating, I think. I mean, I, I saw him I saw uh, some footage of him a few days ago when he was taking questions from a group of autistic people, and he was doing it really well. He was doing it well that I a I, I, way I can't imagine many other politicians being able to do. And yet he comes with this, you know people compare him to Jupiter, this, this arrogance, this overconfidence that also comes through very strongly. Has he managed to temper that that arrogance or is it something that the French actually appreciate about him?
1: I think that he thought when he became president that the French wanted grandeur, they wanted a sense of sort of almost regal presence in their president. And I think he took that too far. He took that, uh, he embodied that in a way that actually came across as arrogant and it didn't help some of the little comments that he made. Do you remember when he talked to a gardener once who was looking for a job and he said, oh, you just have to cross the road and I'll find your job in a restaurant. These comments, I think he thought they were, they, they that might be helpful, but it was it was incredibly hurtful, and I think that that has taken him some time to kind of uh, absorb and, and correct. And you haven't heard him make many of those recently. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things about the way he is or enacts the presidency is that if you meet him in a one on one situation, he's actually incredibly engaging. You know, he's really not like an ordinary politician to interview. He he doesn't try and duck the question. He he listens hard and he tries to answer it. He's very engaging, but he's Failed, I think, to ever fully project that in public. You mentioned that interview he did with um, with some of those autistic journalists, which was fascinating because that I think he was a, one of the rare examples where he did come across exactly as he does in, in, in private. And I think that that failure to project this publicly has been one of the, the difficulties he's had and is why that, that reputation for arrogance has stuck with him and why people just don't think, even today, that he's a kind of likeable person.
0: What do you think his biggest mistakes have been as president?
1: Well, I suppose that's one of them, you know, this uh, inability to persuade people that he likes them and that he is likable. On the policy side, I think one would have to go back to the Gilets Jaunes crisis. Remember, he tried to introduce a, an increase in the carbon tax on petrol. And this was the, the, the trigger to the biggest uprising he's had to deal with. It got really nasty, really personal. There were effigies of him burnt and and hung on roundabouts it was extremely violent movement in a way hijacked and sort of transformed from what had originally been a quite a peaceful uprising but i think the way that was managed was um at the time that was how that was introduced and why you know why there was no sense of sort of uh, managing that before it got out of control would have to be one of his mistakes and i suppose the other in foreign policy is is the way he he handled the way he handled Putin, so much as the excessive faith he put in his ability to talk, you know, sense into Putin. This was, with retrospect, a mistake, and he, he recognised it. There was a documentary, fascinating documentary, that appeared on, on France um, French television last year, where he was asked, you know, did you think you had an unrealistic ability to to talk sense into Putin? And he said, yeah, I did. He made a similar mistake with Trump, didn't he? Well, I'm not sure you, I would consider it such a, such a mistake. You know, I think he thought he could talk, sweet talk Trump into better behavior. I mean, there were nothing like the same. Uh, sort of um, outcomes in the US as there have been in Russia, and I am so, I'm certainly not laying Russia's invasion of Ukraine at Macron's door. I think that I don't mean to intent, imply that at all. But you know, yes, I think this is very much part of Macron's character. He engages in foreign policy on a one-to-one, sort of p- person-to-person basis. He likes to get to know the person he's dealing with. He really thinks, I think, that he has a power of persuasion that can sometimes talk them out of doing things that other people can't. and you know, you, you have to hand it to him for trying. In some respects, I think he thought he could do it with, with Trump. He couldn't, um, and you know, sometimes sometimes it actually can lead to, to it can lead to a very sort of strong relationship. I think in the end, Macron and Merkel had a really good relationship, very very respectful. It was wobbly at first, but it ended up being very very good. So he can connect with people, but it's um, sometimes it's an excessive a sense of his own ability to influence others that gets the better of him.
0: Ambitious though he is, I don't think he necessarily wants to be remembered only for raising the French retirement age. What does he want to be remembered for? What would he love his legacy to be?
1: It's a good question. I mean, you know, he always said he wanted to, to transform France, whatever that means. And I think in some respects he has. He certainly transformed the image of France before he was elected. It was, you know, seen as a sort of, you know, country that didn't really want investors, that taxed people too much, that was, you know, very difficult to create jobs and difficult to lay people off. And it's all become much more sort of fluid and I think much more sort of business friendly. So the broader sense, of having transformed France, I suspect, but also also more importantly, or perhaps as importantly, transforming Europe. You know, this is part of Macron's DNA. He absolutely lives and breathes Europe. He thinks that Europe is, you know, France can only be strong if Europe's strong. And he conveyed that message back in 2017, when during his election campaign at a time when it was really unfashionable to be in favour of Europe. So I think if he, you know I, I suspect he would like his legacy to be here to have transformed Europe too, possibly holding the center against the extremes, but you know we 'll see that in two thousand twenty seven
0: well speaking of that, do you think his legacy will depend in part on whether he is succeeded by a far right president
1: it will, and certainly in the short run I and mean, i mean if you think back to Obama, you know he is remembered for other things than the fact that he was succeeded by Trump. You know, I think macron will have other things that will be in that legacy, regardless of who succeeds him. But he's certainly haunted by the fact that, you know, he has to do or find a way somehow to make sure that the centre can hold in 2027. And that if he doesn't, it will feel at the time like a time like a terrible failure, certainly in the short term. And that in a way is is really his challenge for the next four years. Thanks so much for joining us, Sophie. Thanks. It's been such a pleasure. The Bunker is free, but if you value this podcast, you can
0: support us by searching Patreon Bunker Podcast and choosing how much you'd like to donate. I'm Roz Taylor. Thanks for listening.
1: The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jet Gerbertson, Kasia Tomasiewicz, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.